A little over four years ago, we were living in the city of Fairfield, not too far from here. And we were renting a house that the Lord had provided for us. And one weekend, uh, we went down to Rhode Island for a funeral of my friend's mother. And we came back a day or so after. And I remember when we got home, that the house was eerily cold. It wasn't totally uncommon for that house to be cold because it often was. It was really all we could do in the wintertime to keep that thing above 65 degrees. But it was kind of especially cold in there. And I remember being excited that day because a new season of one of my favorite TV shows was beginning. And so I settled in that night on the couch, turned on the TV. But I couldn't get beyond the fact that it was just too cold in the house. There was an obvious problem. And then we began to hear a hissing sound. And so I went over to the cellar door, opened that cellar door, and it was like a sauna. Suddenly all of this steam was rolling out of the cellar. I went down there and there were several inches of water down there. And apparently while we were gone, it had gotten so cold, and this is something I know many of you have experienced up here in Maine. We, we, it had gotten so cold down there that the pipes had burst, which made it so that the water was unable to get from the lower floor to the first floor and to the second story of the house. And so the furnace was running and running and running and running the whole time we were gone as the thermostats on the first and second floor kept calling for more heat. To add insult to injury, it turned out that one of the pipes on the first floor had burst and that had shot out water as well. And so to top all of that off, the area where the sump pump shot water out of the basement was under inches of snow and ice outside, leaving all the water inside. All of this happening in a house that wasn't even mine. Now that was a, that was a small crisis, right? Again, most of you have experienced pipes bursting in Maine. But it was a small crisis. But regardless of the size of a crisis... Every single person within this room has experienced many of them. And despite its size in every crisis that you and I face, we have an opportunity to respond in those moments of crisis. And as you stand there, and whether it's a small one or a large one, specifically when they're larger, and you can kind of see that the problem is coming toward you, and there's kind of a dark providence, a dark cloud that's on its way toward you, in those moments, you have an opportunity to respond to what is coming your way. And so the question is, even beginning on the emotional side, how do you you begin? How do you respond when crisis comes into your life? Anger? Clamming up a little bit? You you become a a recluse and you you don't want to deal with the issue or you don't want to handle it publicly or any kind of way? Do you have a, a bunch of anxiety as a crisis begins Coming your way? How do you respond when the pressure of crisis is upon you? In our text this morning, Daniel suddenly finds himself in a crisis that he himself did not bring upon himself. And the difference that I want to draw from this text this morning is the difference between living by faith in man's perspective and living by faith in God's providence. And those two are on the back of all of your bulletins. There is a grand canyon of a difference between those two approaches in life where you're living by faith in man's perspective or you're living by faith in God's providence. 
On the one side, living by faith in man's perspective will lead you always to depending on man's resources and the things that man has to offer. But then on the other side of it, if you're living by faith in God's providence, it leads you to depend on the resources that God provides. Notice first with me that living by faith in man's perspective leads to living by man's resources. I've already asked you about your emotional reaction when a crisis, again, big or small, hits you. But what is your typical mode of operation when you begin to act when the crisis is upon you? What are the kind of resources that you take? The crisis has come, the cloud is over you, it's pouring rain. What are the resources that you go to? What measures do you take in life? Interestingly enough, a crisis comes to Babylon in the form of a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. And you can see how he reacts both emotionally and practically to this dream. Now think of Nebuchadnezzar. We really haven't had a good chance to be introduced to him to this point. But he is the king of Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq. Nebuchadnezzar, he reigned for about 43 years, which Daniel was essentially part of the entire reign of Nebuchadnezzar. These two would have certainly had an interesting relationship with one another that the book of Daniel doesn't go all that much into. We know from history that Nebuchadnezzar had committed himself to making Babylon a beautiful city. Babylon had incredibly large and beautiful gates, one of which uh, was essentially a wonder of that age where it had been plated and all the rest just a beautiful, which they uh, actually had a season where uh, they believed their God would come through uh, that gate. Of course, you know that uh, one of the famous ancient seven wonders of the world would have been the hanging gardens of Babylon. It's also said that the walls of Babylon were so incredibly thick that they would actually have chariot races on top of them. Nebuchadnezzar had certainly built an incredible city and he had an eye for beauty. But you cannot understand Nebuchadnezzar if you don't understand him as a man of war. Which should be obvious because of the exiles from Judah that had been brought in the conquering of Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar had brought down on them. He was a man of battle. He was a warrior king, kind of like uh, our King David, uh, of course, the second king of Israel, where he was a warrior king. He was king of the nation, yet he had hands that were stained with blood. And I think that we can certainly put Nebuchadnezzar into this stereotypical hardened warrior camp. Nebuchadnezzar was not a sweetheart. He he was not soft-handed, nor was he soft-hearted. His actions display for us the fact that he is quick to judge and he is quick to execute. Furthermore, we know from the rest of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar was incredibly arrogant, even in relation to his own kingdom. Daniel chapter 4 records Nebuchadnezzar's words for us about himself, where he says, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I think all of us probably study, uh, struggle with pride a little bit, but can you imagine walking out? Look at me. This is the glory of my majesty that I have built in this place. This gives you a glimpse into what Nebuchadnezzar thought of his achievements. But the crisis of the dream comes upon this proud warrior named Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to see again how this king, uh, who does not believe in the true God, handles this situation. Look again in verse 3. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans, which is that group of people, said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the the Chaldeans, those magicians and sorcerers, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins 
But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. What Nebuchadnezzar is displaying for us is that he lives by faith in man's perspective, which leads him to live by man's resources. He apparently doesn't even go to the temple of his gods or goddesses. There's no indication in our text. He goes straight to the magicians and the enchanters and this class of people dedicated to answering these kinds of questions. Now, this is a little bit odd for us, isn't it? I've never had somebody in my three and a half years as a pastor of the church here. Nobody has come to me and said, I had this dream. What does it mean? And nobody, none of you have come to me and mentioned that. But this is exactly what he did. And this would have been a very common thing. And we see this also with Joseph in the book of Genesis. And so you can imagine the impossibility of this sort of question. But there's this whole profession called the Chaldeans within this text that are uh, dedicated to this kind of thing. And so one author has said, Extant religious texts show that the interpretation of dreams was an art in which wise men were believed to be skilled. They had manuals to state what the various factors which might appear in the dream signified. All they had to know was the nature of the dream so that their rules could be applied. But as you see within the text, Nebuchadnezzar is refusing to give the nature of the dream. He won't tell them what his dream is, and so they can't apply their rules to his dream in order to interpret it. So if they really are the kinds of magicians and dream interpreters uh, that, they, that they claim to be and have great skill, then certainly they don't need the dream. You should just be able to give me the dream and tell me what it is. And these magicians clearly say in verse 10, there is not a man on earth who can Obey the king's demand. Exactly. Exactly. Now think of the impossibility. I had a dream last night, this morning, and I woke up from it, and it creeped me out, and it was a freaky dream. But if I said, tell me what that dream was, none of you would get close. This is an impossible situation. Dreams are already weird enough as it is. The chances of somebody being able to get close to knowing what one another dreamed about last night are slim to none, let alone nailing it on the head, like Nebuchadnezzar was asking. But he goes on to tell them what their punishment will be if they don't. We're going to tear you limb from limb. Now, I think that Sinclair Ferguson helps us to understand well what is going on in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. First is insecurity, and the second is hostility. So his emotional response is seen in verse 1. The dream troubles his spirit. This is a problem for him. A man who has absolute control and power. The most powerful man in the known world is completely derailed by a dream. So he's ultimately a very insecure man. But the second response is hostility. You don't tell me the dream and I'm going to tear you limb from limb. And then I'm going to lay waste to all of your houses. So even if he lets the families of those people live, he's going to take away all of their livelihood. He is an insecure and hostile man, and he's insecure and he's hostile because he lives from man's perspective. He's insecure and hostile because he's living according to his own earthly perspective, and he's relying on earthly means for his answer in the midst of crisis. Now let's put Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and his three friends side by side. You have the most powerful king in the world on one side, out of his mind over a dream, acting in a worldly way, looking toward worldly resources for help. Nebuchadnezzar has set his mind and hope on the quicksand of earth. And then you have Daniel, an exile, 
stripped of everything that he owned. He was of noble birth. He was stripped of all of that, stripped of his family in a pagan country. And Daniel and his three friends are now feeling the impact of this king's crisis. Yet they somehow stand firm. So you have unstable, insecure, hostile. And then on this side, you have standing firm. You have them being steadfast. And what you're going to see in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar and his response is that living by faith in God's providence leads you to living by God's resources. Look with me at verse 13. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied, and how did he reply? With prudence and discretion to Arioch the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And so our second main heading, living by faith in God's providence, it leads you to living by God's resources. First, by trusting in God's answers, trusting God for the answers, responding there in prudence and in discretion. What you see is an obvious trust in the Lord for the answers. Nebuchadnezzar has this emotional response to his dream. And his life is not even on the line. Daniel doesn't show an emotional response at all. In fact, the way he responds indicates that he is ultimately centered on something that is outside and beyond the crisis. If his hope were set on that crisis, his life would wobble. But because he is set on something else, he is stable throughout it. Verse 14 is clear. He responds with prudence and discretion. This is always a marvel to see, isn't it? That how you respond in times of crisis says a lot about who you are. One of my favorite preachers of the 20th century, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was preaching in England during wartime in World War II. And Lloyd-Jones was in the midst of the service. He was praying during a church service on a Sunday morning when England was being bombed. Can you imagine if Windsor was being bombed today? Do you think any of us would be in this room right now? But they... (laughs) Pastor's kid. (laughs) But Lloyd-Jones was praying during a church service and the bombs were going everywhere. There were people meeting to worship God despite the bombing. Well, Lloyd-Jones was, while he was praying, a bomb actually dropped a few yards away from the building that he was in. He stopped praying for a second, a few moments, and then began praying again. He finished his sermon, and that was that. Can you imagine? This action tells you a lot about that man, but the action tells you a lot about the people sitting in the pews too, doesn't it? Like hot water reveals what's in a tea bag. What comes out of you in a hot water situation says a lot about you. And what Daniel displays for us is that his response is predicated not on the circumstance, but on who God is. 
He knows God is sovereign. He had reckoned with that years ago. He was in Babylon because God wanted him to be there. He was now in the service of the king because God wanted him to be there. And he knew that every day of his life was dependent on God. And the display from Daniel is not a wringing of his hands, but discretion and prudence. And my friends, if, if, if God is sovereign and he is not wringing his hands in heaven... You should not be wringing your hands on earth. From there, Daniel continues to respond well in that he requests a time to meet with the king before he even knew what the dream or interpretation of the dream was. But did you notice the third way that Daniel responds? He responds in prayer with other believers in verses 17 and 18. So he responds with prudence and discretion. He responds in faithful action, depending on the Lord to provide the answers. And the third thing he does is rely on God in prayer with fellow believers in the true God. A person who is responding rightly by faith, trusting in God's resources, will go to the Lord in prayer. Is that your response? Like Nebuchadnezzar, when the crisis is on you, do you scramble to, to, to find the answers? Do you get on Google and try to figure out an answer from Google? Or, or do you get insecure and hostile and irritable, trusting in only what you can see? Or do you slow down and say, God is sovereign. I'm going to pray to the only one who has the control in this situation. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And you know this, don't you? You forfeit peace. You forfeit God's resources by not coming to him in prayer. Particularly prayer with other Christians. Daniel is not a solo act. Just because his name is at the top of the book does not mean that it's strictly about Daniel. Daniel is more like a leader of a quartet instead of a solo singer. You see that he goes to his three friends in verse 18. And what does he say? Seek mercy from the God of heaven. Friends, how often do you reach out to other believers when you're in the midst of crisis? You call someone or go to the house and say, brother or sister, I I need you to pray for this. I need you to seek mercy from the God of heaven. It's not just a a chain chain email sent out, but it's an actual getting together intensity, grabbing one another by the arm after church, before church, during the week, as a church family that has covenanted together to pray for one another. And we say, we must seek mercy from the God of heaven for my child and their wellness, for my child and their health for my parents as they are getting older. We need to seek mercy from the God of heaven. We have to look to him. We've got to depend on the resources that come from God. We have to rely on the things that can come from him alone. I mean, what is a church family if we cannot do that with one another? What's a church family if we cannot pray with one another and that we don't pray with one another? What is a church family if we don't know the crises that one another are in and beseeching the God of heaven for mercy? In those times of distresses. Brian Chapel has said, when the bottom fell out, Daniel fell to his knees. Brothers and sisters, when the bottom falls out, do you fall to your knees with one another? And so we trust God, excuse me, we trust God for the answers. And next we bless God for the answers. 
And so these young men trust God for his answer, and he gives the answer. In fact, you see in verse 19 that Daniel has a vision in the night, and God gives him the answer. And an immediate reaction from Daniel is to bless God. And you see that in verses 20 to 24. And you may be thinking, well, of course Daniel's going to bless God. He's got his answer now, right? It's easy to bless God when the answer has come. But you have to wait a second and consider the moment in time that Daniel is in. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know the answer yet. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know the response. He's still in a fury. All of the wise men and the magicians, they're all being rounded up and they're about to be led to the slaughter. And here Daniel stands as the only man in the kingdom with the answer to this crisis. And so before we think that this is going to just be easy street for Daniel, we need to remember what the dream and the interpretation of the dream are. Because when we do, we will understand that Daniel is still in the middle of a crisis. And from the human perspective, the irrational king will very probably much not like the dream and what it means. But this doesn't stop Daniel. So he prays to his God for mercy. God extends mercy and gives the dream and the interpretation. Daniel blesses God. He thanks God and praises him for the answer. And then he goes to the king and he speaks as God's mouthpiece when he's given the answer. Look at verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show you, show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. And that's exactly what they had said earlier in the chapter, right? They're like, no, no one on earth can give you the answer to this. Verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Speaking for God when given answers. Can you even imagine? Nebuchadnezzar's wise men have acknowledged that they don't have the answer. Daniel in verse 21 admits that the wisdom he gets, it's not his own. Nebuchadnezzar, this powerful man, doesn't have anything. And brothers and sisters, the only one with answers to your problems and the only one with the answer in the crises all around the world is God. You consider the crisis that every person in the planet has. It is a sin crisis. Being born in their sins. Being depraved. Unrighteous before a holy God. Every single person apart from Christ is in a massively deep crisis. And what has God done? He has sent His Son to die on the cross for sinners. On Calvary to pay for the sin debt of so many. And for those who would look by faith on Christ. And believe upon him. They too can have eternal life with Jesus. Have you genuinely trusted and repented in Christ? Or are you still in the midst of your own. The biggest crisis that you have. Have you trusted in Him as God being the only answer and coming to Him, not with your good works, not with your upbringing, not with anything you have achieved in life, but just saying, in Christ alone our hope is found. Jesus has commissioned us to tell non-believing people about the answer to their crisis of sin. Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried, risen, ascended, and coming again. It may be because I'm a preacher, but I love this scene. Daniel, upon receiving answers from God, speaks them to the greatest man on earth. He's an example of godly strength before an insecure pagan man. An example of peace before a racked king, declaring the word of the Lord boldly in the face of a man who was highly hostile and rash, regardless of the outcome. 
Or that God would give us men in the pulpits throughout New England who declare the word of the Lord with boldness to a lost and dying kingdom around us and quit capitulating to the whims of our culture and to say the hard things. That God would give us Christians who are Daniel-like or Christ-like in that they are both bold and winsome. And when they are called upon, they don't shrivel away. They don't shrivel away from speaking the truth, but that they know the truth and that they speak it into the lost and dying culture. Daniel is a fantastic example of what it means to be a Christian in power in a modern age. We're going to see that Daniel is going to rise to significance during the reign of these kings. And it is wonderful to see somebody with wisdom and eloquence while in power and not be self-adulating about it. Daniel is one of the tall men or women of scripture who stood in a winsome and wise way in a place or time where doing the right thing was not the popular thing to do. When you think of the people through scripture, you think of men like Joseph who stood before Pharaoh, the greatest man on earth at that time. Moses, who stood before Pharaoh, the greatest man on earth at that time. Elijah, who spoke God's truth to Ahab about Jezebel. Esther, who going before her husband the king on behalf of her people. John the Baptist, calling out Herod for taking his brother's wife in sexual immorality. Of course, Jesus himself, who stood boldly in the midst of persecution and who stood before Pontius Pilate. Men and women who stood before the most powerful people in their world or in their area and they spoke God's truth to them. And here is Daniel, before this great earthly king, with four words, thus says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we need some people to rise up in this generation with those four words on their lips. Thus says the Lord. Men and women who don't shield their Christianity and love for the Lord within the public square. Men and women who will read their Bibles study their Bibles, know their Bibles, and preach it and teach it to a lost and dying world that is crumbling all around us as all earthly kingdoms do and declare the word of the Lord to them and pray to God for His mercy. We don't need men and women to be jerks to their fellow citizens on earth, trolling people on the internet, always looking for a fight over some minute point. We need men and women who will stand with God's word and conviction and speak it clearly. Daniel is bold and gracious and determined and prayerful. Take care of how you speak to others and engage with, the, with others that you disagree with. Do it in a winsome way, a wise way, and speak the truth of God. So what's this dream all about anyway? Why is Nebuchadnezzar In such a tither. In verses 31 to 35, Daniel relays what Nebuchadnezzar saw. He saw a great image, a statue, and Daniel concedes that the appearance of this statue was frightening. The statue of the, or the head of the statue was of pure gold. The the shoulders of this statue and its chest were made out of silver. Its middle and its thighs were made out of bronze. Its legs were made out of iron. The feet were made out of a mixture of iron and of clay. And what is obvious is that these various sections refer to kingdom or kings. The head is Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel explicitly says the head is made of gold and it represents you. But from there, there is debate as to exactly what the rest of the body represents. Although most scholars seem to agree that the main four empires being discussed are Babylon as the head, as silver shoulders and chest would be the Medes and the Persians, 
Then the middle and the thighs would be bronze with, uh, for Greece with Alexander the Great. And then the legs of iron being the Roman Empire, which was, of course, incredibly strong all the way up until the first century. But in the spirit of making sure that we're emphasizing what is clear in Daniel and not speculating about what we do not know, which is something we're going to do a lot as we go through Daniel, there is also another kingdom that is mentioned in this chapter. Look at verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdoms be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. And the interpretation, sure. So you've got gold and silver and bronze and iron and iron mixed with clay. Great kingdoms written down in the history books, right? And then a stone cut from a mountain by no human hand is going to break that entire statue. And so the question is, who or what is this stone? Like I think we have a dual answer for the head representing Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. In this small stone, we have represented the kingdom of God and its king, King Jesus. Luke chapter 20, verse 18 says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Sound familiar? All of these nations will be smashed to pieces by a stone. Again, Luke 20, 18, Jesus speaking, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. King Jesus and his conquering kingdom that is not of this world at the moment will continue to advance, squashing all other kingdoms in its presence. Like we sing in a mighty fortress is our God. His kingdom is forever. And so Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He inaugurates his kingdom. It begins small, right? Like a mustard seed. But it has grown and grown and grown into a great tree or a great mountain. The kingdoms of Babylon and the Medes and the Persians and Greece and Rome, they're all gone. The entire image and all it represents is written down in history. Yet the kingdom of God has been established by Christ and it has been growing for 2,000 years and the kingdom of God will never have an end. That is encouraging, Christian, that the kingdom that you and I belong to isn't going to end. America, should the Lord tarry, is going to end at some point. The nations of the earth are going to end. It will all change and be different like it always has been throughout history. But the kingdom of God will never end and it will never change. Gabriel says to his mother Mary, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Isaiah chapter 9 says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is an eternal king over an eternal kingdom and if there is going to be a focus of my life and if there's going to be a focus of your life and if there's going to be a focus of daniel's life it must be that we are seeking the kingdom of god and his righteousness as the lord tells us to do in matthew 6 
Friends, this statue helps us to put into perspective what we've been talking about this morning. Nebuchadnezzar is all about looking from man's perspective and depending on man's resources. Daniel isn't even trusting in himself for the answers at all. He's depending on the Lord's resources, all coming from God. His reaction was trust in God, even upon knowing the dream and its interpretation. What does Nebuchadnezzar do when he finds out the dream? His emotional response is that he falls on his face. He's amazed. Daniel is legit, right, in comparison to all of the other magicians. In those moments, he gives Daniel and his friends positions and all of that. But what does Nebuchadnezzar, what is his next move that we see within the book of Daniel? Daniel chapter 3. He builds a statue. He builds an image for himself made out of gold like the one that he saw in his dream except not just the head is gold. The entire body is made out of gold. Nebuchadnezzar is still working from the framework of what he can see. It is his own perspective But brothers and sisters, I have to believe that Daniel, like his track record is beginning to show, his focus was not on the statue of metals of his dream. His focus would have been on the stone. The stone not cut with human hands, but with God's. Daniel would not be contented with the fact that at least he got to be a part of the kingdoms of silver and gold. Well, I'm really glad I got to be in Babylon during the golden time or during the silver time. That's not where his hope was. His hope would have been in that kingdom that would come. And he would do so by faith in the providence of God and depending on God's resources and not his own. Let's pray. Lord, your word is sure. It is good. And help us to do this, we pray. Lord, we recognize that we are sinful and that we are often going our own way and our eyes are often so lowered as we live from our perspective so often, forgetting to remind ourselves that regardless of crisis, you're sovereign. This is in our lives for providential reasons. And I pray that you'll help us to look to you, to look to you for the answers, to be lowered in to humility, and to trust in you and you alone. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, will you stand with me? Let's sing Stronger. He is Stronger.